We're uh, going to continue in our study in the book of Judges, and we have um, the scripture for you in the bulletin. And just as a reminder to you, we read scripture every week. This is the word of God. Um, this is God's message to us in story and sometimes in teaching form and instructive and other ways. This is more story form, narrative we call it. But this is the word of God. So urge your hearts and minds to receive it like that. Judges 6, uh, 25 through 7, 8a. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took the ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night and rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, Bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is God, he can defend himself when someone else breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jerubbaal saying, let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Aborizerites to follow him. He sent messengers through Manasseh, calling them to arms, and, and also into Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtiah, so that they went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a, a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next morning. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry, all the ground was covered with dew. Early in the morning, Jerbel, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. 
The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lap with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give you the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. This is the word of God. I'm Georgia Hyde. I'm the associate pastor here at Christ Central. And, um, you know, as, as, uh, the more I, I walk and, and try to follow Jesus, the, the, the crazier I think it is to be a Christian. The, the, the weirder I think we are. Um, the, the stranger I think it is. And, uh, I think it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. I'm still here. I'm in it. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, uh, but, but, we're an odd people. I mean, not just that we just, you know, wet the head of an infant and thought Jesus did something there. Uh, not just that we eat communion and uh, talk about bread as body and uh, and wine as blood. Uh, uh, that's a little odd, right? Um, but we live in a world that's got all these flurries of ideas and 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 different worldviews and philosophies and politics and and you got. It's just hard to kind of know what it's supposed to feel like to be a Christian. You have you have uh, uh, so many good things, so many great ideas, and so many uh, interesting uh, uh, beliefs that make up our world, from Dr. Phil to uh, Deepak Chopra to from People Magazine to the Communist Manifesto, from just common sense pragmatics to keeping up with the Joneses. We just got so many ways to think about the world, and it kind of feels weird sometimes to be a Christian. It feels weird to to uh, to to kind of find your way, what it means to follow Christ. And I'm saying this for you, those of you who are uh, Christians and who call themselves followers of Christ, and those for you who aren't. Uh, just kind of fair warning, if you uh, end up following Jesus, it'll feel strange. It doesn't always feel right. It doesn't. You don't always know where to go, and it makes sense of 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 the little bit of crazy feelings that you have when I when I read someone like Flannery O'Connor who says that you will know the truth and the truth will make you odd. <laughs> I think we are a little bit odd. Good, but odd. Gideon helps here because Gideon is a fascinating person. He is chock full of fear and eventually faith and eventually a fierce kind of evil that you'll see next week. He is a mess and a hero. As Pastor Howard talked about uh, him last week, an ironic mighty warrior. His name is Gideon, which means hacker. But he's so much more like a slacker 
in most of, this, of the passages that we've read. He is both slacker and hacker. And we're going to just spend some time in these, this trilogy of stories that we're going through just to get a feel for what it's like to be Gideon, just to get a feel for what the world is like here. Gideon and his stories should encourage us because Gideon is odd too, like us. And maybe, just maybe, that those stories can transform us, change us, mess with us a little bit, uh, give us a little bit of comfort, and maybe even some ways forward. But you're going to miss the point of judges, as Pastor Howard has so clearly demonstrated from the scriptures thus far, if you believe that these stories are just about Gideon and or some weird connection to us. The trajectory of the book of Judges is a downward spiral. It is a plane in a nosedive, a really valiant and awful and big nosedive. People get worse in Judges. And this nosedive trajectory of things getting worse and worse and moving in this nosedive of rebellion, sin and hate and dehumanization and depravity. It gets really, you thought it was bad with the tent pegs and all that other stuff we had earlier? Just wait, it's coming. It gets really bad in a little bit. The hero of this story is actually Yahweh. As we get worse, his patience gets greater. He is the narrative, uh, uh, the, the, the hero of the narrative. It is not a trilogy of Gideon, but a trilogy of God's grace. Tenacious, humble, sacrificial, strong, even aggressive grace and pursuit of his people. He is the story's hero. And what we're going to do is we're going to just walk through these stories. Let's just spend some time on them. And what I want us to do is look through the three different lenses of Gideon, try to get a good understanding of him and his complex world, maybe us and our complex, complex world, but never forgetting the story's hero is Yahweh himself. Let's go to the first episode, episode one of the trilogy, Tearing Down. Let's look at uh, uh, page uh, uh, verse 25. The same night the Lord said to him, this is the same night as Pastor Howard's sermon last week about the call. So he got called, and then that same night, take a bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of, his, of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Okay. Asherah poles and bales. Okay. It's hard to know exactly what Asherah poles uh, and, and the god of Baal was. Asherah is a goddess. But we, we pretty much know it's a wooden uh, post, if you will. A totem pole to worship, uh, to, to worship her. The interesting thing about Asherah and Baal is that they're such pervasive gods that sometimes in some places they're fertility gods and goddesses. And so you do it for, you, you, uh, you worship them so that your crops will come through. Sometimes they're war. Sometimes they're thunder. It's actually like kind of a choose your own adventure god. You can have your own god for whatever you, they're so pervasive and and uh, sometimes they're uh, they're married and have this kind of uh, this kind of steamy love affair in in, in relations in some of the Ugaritic texts and then other places they're actually enemies from each other uh, but the point is that there's such a pervasive god that, that, and goddess that they're everywhere and it just proves what an idol is an idol are things that we craft in our own image they become something we need or want or desire it becomes this kind of concrete reality that we have uh, hoisted all our desires and hopes for uh, uh, it's just a self projection of who we are that's what idols are but in the end they're nothing more than wood and stone now don't get me wrong they're things we worship so we give all our value our worth to them and so they do have power we gave them all that power but they get in the end they're wood and stubble 
And that's what God sees when he comes to Israel, an astral pole. Israel is a mess. You understand what's happening here. God has called Gideon to free himself from, to free his people from the Midianites and the Midianites from Israel. And Gideon's house has a Midianite God in it, two of them, in his backyard. It shows what kind of mess Israel's in. Uh, uh, his dad's supposed to be a follower of Yahweh, right? But he has a place in his, he has this big pole in his, in his yard and, uh, and, a, uh, and a, a place to worship Baal in his yard. Israel has become paganized, if you will. They've totally adopted uh, the, 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 the gods and the worldviews and the complexities of the Canaanite people. And God's saying this, get rid of your house of idols. Yahweh's spring cleaning of Gideon's house is going on here, tearing down the idols. Now, you understand how weird this is. This is kind of like, I was trying to think of what this means, that he's, God is calling uh, the son of the chief priest, in some ways the chief priest of Baal, to undo Baal worship. It's like calling Charlton Heston's son to, to fight the NRA, or Hugh Hefner's son to you know, fight pornography or, you know, something like that. This is a strange and difficult thing. You know, you're, you're going to have some dad issues, you know, if you keep go, if you keep pursuing this. Uh, uh, and, and, and how does he do it? I don't know if you can, can kind of, kind of see this, but he steals one of his dad's bulls and, uh, and he, uh, uh, so again, more dad issues and he ties a rope to the pole and he yanks the pole down from the, uh, from the bulls, from the, uh, use the bull to yank the pole down. Then he cuts it up. Uh, he destroys the altar of Baal, creates a new altar and burns the bull on it as a point of sacrifice. This is like a, Touchdown end zone dance like nobody's business. This is like total mocking of your God, right? Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and he's, he, he's just, he's saying, no, I am replacing, uh, replacing Yahweh with Baal. And this is what God's trying to do. Uh, he's trying to show the powerlessness of that idol of Baal and the incredible power of Yahweh. God's taunting Baal. And you know what Gideon does? Straight away obeys, right? So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. Perfect, fast obedience. Just like you and I do. You know how it feels to be a Christian? It always feels like we're victoriously Christian living. Every day is better than the next. I'm here to do your bidding all the time, Lord. I'm glad to give it all for you because I trust you and love you and I never have doubts. God, give me the next direction so I can walk confidently without doubt what I'm to do next. Right? Isn't that how it feels? That's not how it feels to be a Christian. Those things are true and good, but the feel of faith isn't necessarily confidence. The feel of faith is a little bit sometimes like what the text says about Gideon. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in daytime. He carried out his or he had a managed obedience. Nobody ever has that, do they? You know, do exactly what the Lord said as long as it doesn't make X mad. Right. Gideon assumes that the people are going to be ticked at him. And he's right. Gideon believes that they're so committed to their gods that any disruption of the way it's they want to have it. Any disruption where Yahweh comes in and, and claims worship for himself. Anything like that will make them really mad. God's actually asking him to do some guerrilla warfare, some type of genuine, legitimate insurgency, if you will, on on the God of Baal. 
But Gideon's not a moron. Gideon's actually right. They did get ticked at him. They got really mad at him. He's not an idiot for being scared. He may be a little more faithless than he could have been if he did it in daylight, but he's not a moron. The men come to the town demanding of Joash, that's Gideon's dad, bring out your son, he must die. Oh, they carefully investigated. I love that. They had a CSI truck out and everything going for him. They got him. They were going to figure it out. Where did he get that bull, you know? Uh, uh, Horatio with his glasses and everything. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, bring out your son. He must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the astral pole beside it. He's got to die. This is how value, how much value they've put on this God who's the choose-your-own-adventure God. What God is doing here, though, in dealing with Gideon, is he's actually tearing down two idols. Do you notice that? There's the idol of Baal, but he's actually after Gideon's idol, too. Gideon's idol of pleasing his father, pleasing, making sure people don't get fear of man, if you will. That's a good biblical term. Fear of mankind, fear of other people instead of fear of God. He's dealing with two idols at the same time. Now, I, I don't completely blame Gideon, but God kind of, uh, uh, but God, the scriptures clearly point out that, you know, he was, he, it wasn't a perfect obedience, if you will. He's scared. And so God's working on two idols at the same time, perfectly, uh, using one action and to, to work at his, uh, his dark side of people pleasing so that he'd eventually come to the point where he longs for Yahweh's will than even his own self-protection. Now, this episode ends with uh, Joash successfully defending his son. Uh, Joash must have been the poli- one of the great political leaders of his day. He wouldn't have had the Ashrapole if he, w- if he wasn't. But we don't know what really is going on in, 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 in Joash's heart. We just know he's a skilled negotiator uh, and he's a leader in his community because he does some good political judo. And he says, OK, look, if Baal's all that, let him kill Gideon. And they go, well, yeah, that's pretty good logic. Well, maybe we shouldn't mess with Gideon. And so they call him the one who contends. They change his name uh, to Jerubal or Jerubal. Let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. So he becomes this uh, this person who contends with Baal. Okay, that's the Gideon story. Let's talk about us for a, bit, a little bit. When Christ calls you to himself, there's a price for that. He, he doesn't want to be, in fact, he refuses to be a buddy God. He, 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 he doesn't want to be a tag-along deity in your back pocket for you to take out when you want to. He's a God who aggressively pursues the control center of your life, like a place like worship for Israel. Not because he needs to, because he's on some control kick where he's feeling bad about himself and needs people worshiping. No, because he made us and he created us and he loves us and he knows that we were made for that very thing, for him to be at the control center of our lives. This is a tearing down. You may even call it a throwing away that occurs whenever someone decides to follow Christ. Other things go away. Flannery O'Connor talks about, I got this, uh, this email about, uh, a bunch of Easter quotes, which, you know, pastors are always looking for this time of year. Uh, and it says this, this is a great quotation, encompassing the nature of following Jesus and Jesus being all or nothing. Jesus was the only one, this is from, um, a, uh, I forget, I didn't have the notation. Good man's hard to find, I think. Jesus, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, and he shouldn't have done it. He thrown everything off balance. 
If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. (laughs) Jesus has come down to tear down our idols. Inside, outside. And what are our idols? These are going to be easy ones in America. Money, security, stuff. Nationally, we have bowed down, devoted our families and our children and our children's children to wealth and security. And a resurrected Christ says, if he's in the picture, all that's left to do is throw all that away and turn to him and follow him. Tear it down and clean it out. And he calls us to do tearing down in lots of different ways. Jesus has come to tear down the idols that we worship, that we might tear down other idols in our land. You guys, I want you to know that Christianity is a subversive religion. Wherever we are, Pastor Howard talks about being a grace virus. I love that we that, that language. That wherever we are, we're going to tear down ashram poles and altars to Baal. At home, in work, at school, at playgroup. How about one great idol, the idol of having it together? Rip it down by confessing your sin to one another. Tear it down by inviting people to your home when it's a train wreck. The idol of bottom line economics? Tear it down by refusing to lend money to predatory lenders. Rip it down by demanding that your employees are treated with dignity and respect. The idol of cliquish friendships. Tear it down by hanging out with the marginalized. And those, oh, in this postmodern world who have a confederacy of the marginalized, dare to hang out with someone who's cool. (laughs) Subversion, tearing down the idols that so easily entangle us. And what happens? God goes to work on our idols too slowly, surely. They have less power, require less devotion, and ever so slowly Christ takes his rightful place at the control center of our lives. Episode one. Don't worry, they're not equally as long. Episode two, had some tearing down and we're going to move to some building up. First building up you get in a text. I actually put my little stars in the wrong place. They should go up a hair to 33. Now all the Midianites and Amalekites and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped out in the valley of Jezreel. Basically what's happened is building up. There's a huge building up of a war machine that's happening uh, for the eastern peoples, all the Midianites and Malachites, and they're all uh, gathering together, and that's what's happening there. And then there's another building up. It's a building up of Gideon's power. Oh, let me tell you, uh, a little later on in the text that we, that it's a, uh, that'll be in next week or uh, or a little later in this chapter, uh, the Midianites and the Malachites, they're all joined together, and it says that they're as thick as locusts, and their camels, their camels now, could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. So it was this huge, monstrous group of people who were showing up, okay? But there's another building up that happens, and that's the building up of Gideon's power. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. That's a very different in a, a, a kind of language. You see it more in the New Testament. Sometimes you see it in Saul, but this is a big deal. The Spirit of the Lord comes on him. And, uh, and the people who wanted to kill him not too long ago, 
now want to follow him. So he blows his trumpet, and these people come from all over the place, from Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali. These are all tribes of Israel. All his fellow countrymen come and want to, uh, I think it's 32,000 of them, come and want to follow Gideon. So there's this really interesting buildup. And you would think, okay, let's go. Let's stick it to the Midianites. Let's fight right now. Ready? Go! That's what the text should read. You got 32,000. I know there's a seashore. There's a, there, there are as many camels as there are sand on the seashore, but you can take them. Yahweh's on your team. Ready? Go. But Gideon, remember, y'all, this isn't about the victorious Christian life per se. It's about what it feels like to be a Christian. You have just had these amazing things happen to you and you're stuck. You're lost in confusion. You know what happens now? Uh, it's a fleece. The fleece is basically uh, the fleece episode. The fleece is basically a uh, a uh, hide, if you will, uh, kind of leather underside and um, wool top for a sheep or something like that or a goat. And uh, and what he does, and, and I'll just explain the text to you uh, again. But uh, he says, well, you know, God, mm, okay, so I, I think we should go into battle. That's great and all, but try this one first. And he puts the fleece down. And he says, okay, I want. All the ground to be dry and the fleece to have dew on it. Ready, go. And God does it. So much so that he's able to take the fleece and wring out a bowl full of water. And there's dry land everywhere. He goes, okay, just kidding. Let's try the next one. And I want to put another fleece, the same fleece out or another fleece. I don't know what it is. This time I want the ground to be full of dew and have a dry fleece. Okay, got it. Now, if you're like me, if you've hung around some churches here and there, you've probably heard a bunch of different kinds of sermons on this. All the fleece having you're supposed to have. I've heard stories of youth ministers talking about putting out fleece to decide whether you're supposed to go to the mission field with all sorts of things from, um, from you know, uh, zebras that were, you know, uh, gotten on safari because they didn't have anything else like a fleece. Everything from that to bath towels and cow hides. You know, I've heard flipping coins to figure out what's going to, if it should happen or not. Uh, but when you look into the stories of Gideon's, Gideon, you don't want to just take the Gideon lens, as we talked about before. We want to take the God-size lens. People ask if the question is, is it right or wrong for Gideon to have a fleece? That's an important question. I think it's okay to ask that question. I want to tell you now, I think it was probably not the best thing for him. But again, we're exploring what it feels like to be Gideon, what it feels like to be a Christian. How about this? What if you, I'm going to give you a live example. What if you feel, you know somewhere deep down inside that you're supposed to confess your sin to somebody that hurts you? Now you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's legitimate scripturally. Right? Confess your sins to one another. Let's say you had a really great time of worship or uh, uh, even a quiet time mountaintop experience where you're like, yeah, I really am supposed to go confess my sin. All right. And let's say you talk to a few friends and they were like, you know, you really ought to confess your sins. This is a really good idea. Let's say there's tens of thousands of them. Let's say there's 32,000 of them that think that's a really good idea. Now, you're for sure going to do exactly what you know to do, right? You're for sure going to go and confess your sins, no problem. Well, you see why it might have been wrong for Gideon to do that with fleeces? Think about it. He was clear what the will of the Lord was. If you will save Israel by my hands as you promised, fleece one. 
He knows the promise of the Lord. Empowered by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, the Lord came upon him. And a confirmed leader, he blew a trumpet, and all these people, 32,000 people came. And he knew he was wrong in this sense. Gideon said, do not be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. Scripture teaches you must not put your God to the test. In a book of the Bible before Judges, (laughs) he would have read it and known it. And then he does it twice. Yahweh being good to his word. Gideon not being, having to need another test. Another thing that's indi- that indicates is that he calls God by a generic God term, kind of Lord. He doesn't mention him as Yahweh, this personal God. I wonder if it's why Yahweh doesn't just take him out in one sense right there. Gideon was not believing or trusting uh, uh, that God would keep his promises to love and care for his people. The personal name for God, who he has called God or, or a Gideon of Yahweh in the earlier chapters is gone. It seems like Gideon's got him as some life force, some luck charm, some cosmic blob of ideas or something that moves things forward. But you must understand, right or wrong, the passage here is not about Gideon or his fleece. The passage is about God's fleece. I don't recommend putting out fleeces to determine the will of God. But I do recommend that you look to Gideon's God, the Yahweh, who condescends to our faithlessness, who graciously and patiently deals with our trustless hearts, who gets down on our knee so he can look us in the eyes of our adolescent faith and fears. When you're scared to death, when you're terrified that you won't be able to tear down the idols of your heart or community, when you cannot be reached with the overwhelming evidence of God's word, of your really good experience of the spirit of God being on you, of the overwhelming evidence that people are actually saying this is the right thing to do, then look to Gideon's God. Don't do the fleece, but look to the God of that fleece. Not so you will start putting fleeces out, but so you will start trusting a God that is this kind, that he can deal with our faithlessness and my faithlessness. Don't you know that's why we have sensible signs like this baptism and the Lord's Supper? We're to remember the ingrafting into Christ, our union with him, our cleansing because of his shed blood, as we see the water trickle down Addison's cheeks, a bowl full, if you will, like the wrung waters of a fleece that are God's gracious reminders of his kneeling, postured love to us. And the supper, next week when we take the supper... Let the bread crunch into your soul that he is a God who gives us things that we can see and taste to follow us so so that we can follow him and trust him more. Episode one is about tearing down. Episode two is about building up. Episode three, the last one, is about paring down. And this paring down is a combination of the other two. Early in the morning... Gideon, Jerubel, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. Herod means trembling. So they went to the waters of trembling. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. Routing is what that means. So you're drinking at the waters of trembling next to this big army, and you go to the hill of routing. So that's looking real good, right? Okay, Gideon, you're ready. 
You've been called. You finally believe with the fleeces. You've got the asterisk poles down. You gathered an army. Go for it. Now take them. 32,000, you got it, right? No again. If you're getting to wonder about how this Christian, this Christian faith works, it doesn't really work linear sometimes. It's all out and abouts and ups and downs and arounds. God has this great idea. Instead of attacking with 32,000 men, he says, no, that's too many. Because their camels can't be counted because there's so many. But that's too many. So let's pare them down. Anyone at the spring of trembling who's scared, you can go home. 22,000 leave. Okay, that's got to be a little bit of a problem. 22,000 leave. Gideon, you know, he's going for another fleece. He's trying to find one somewhere at this point, you know? Okay, I got to find something else, right? And then he goes, eh, still too many. Still too many. Okay, so then what is it? What happens? Okay, when the guys go get some water at the fear of trembling, at the, uh, um, at the waters of trembling, some of them are going to dip down and, and, and cup their hands and drink, and others are going to lap like dogs, you know, on all fours. The ones who cup their hands, keep those. A whopping 9,700 of them get on their hands and knees and lap it up like a dog. Perfect. Now we have 300. 300. They got more camels than we can count, and we're going with 300. God pairs down Gideon's army to the point of ridiculous weakness. And there's that great text adding, added there that, 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 uh, um, that, that they, gra- they gather, here's the provisions, the last bit. So Gideon sent the, the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept their 300 who took over their provisions and trumpets of the others. Okay, come on. Bazookas, you got something other than trumpets. You know, can we have uh, body armor? I don't know, something. But trumpets. And that you find out later, it's trumpets and fire. They have torches. So torches in one hand, trumpet. You got another hand. I don't know what you're going to hold your sword with, but you got a trumpet and you got a, and you got a torch. Go team. Um, you got to be kidding me. After all that building up with the fate, the, the fleeces, you're going to just back him down like that? How, he's going to go crazy back into his fear again. Think of how it might feel. It's either going to feel crazy at best and cruel at worst. Y'all ever feel like that? Following Jesus? You're at the river of trembling and the hill of routing and he leaves you with 300. Without swords, it seems like. At least with trumpets as the main thing. God plans for our weakness. He's intentional in it. It tells us why. You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands in order that Israel will not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Now again, it could seem like God's a haughty God who needs all this glory. We need Him to have the glory because we've already shown what we do when we think we're strong enough. We create the Asherah poles and the, bales, uh, and the altars to Baal. The end of what we are self-governing is uh, worship of sticks and stones. And so he needs us. He doesn't need us. We need him for us to be weak. Weak. 
That didn't make any sense. We need to be weak so that we'll understand his importance at the center control of our lives. Now, I'm not going to tell you what happens at the rest of the sermon about the Victoria Christian life or the results of the following uh, 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 of what happens here. Because my main interest for you is that the oddness and the ups and downs of following Jesus, the torn downs, uh, the idols of your heart and community, sometimes you're built up with this amazing, faithful, patient, miraculous, condescending grace, but all the time we're asked to lean into our weakness. Overwhelming odds that that prove that only a hero can save us and that we cannot be our own hero. A friend of mine describing this passage said to me, this is his quote, your life is for God's glory and not your own. And your weakness is a gift to help you learn that that's true. A gift of weakness. God unapologetically sets us up as weak sets us up and asks us to lean into that weakness. He whittles away all that would that we would that we would use to pretend that we have strength in ourselves. God is not making the people uh but you know you got to know that, that God is not actually making the people of Israel weak. He's showing them that they are weak. He's not making them weak. He's showing them that they are weak. And what this passage asks us to do is embrace our weakness even at the rivers of trembling and the mountains of routing. I told you that the trajectory of judges is a downward spiral. But there's something else uh, that has a trajectory, and that's an arrow that points to a real judge and a true judge, the judge who is Jesus. And I, I don't know if you know this story at all, but Jesus actually does some tearing down in his day too. In John 2 and in other places, the shopkeepers uh, around the temple were selling uh, doves to the poor at exorbitant jacked up prices, living out their idol of wealth and security, just like ours. Poor folks are having to come and they need to buy doves and uh, and the doves are in those, these jacked up prices and, and they can't make sacrifice. They're very access to God. They cannot make sacrifice because they cannot afford to do it. The very thing that keeps him in a right relationship with God. And Jesus does this. It says in John 2 that he sat down and that he made the whip. And then he takes the whip and he starts throwing over tables, tearing things down. Jesus tears down the money changer's stuff, refusing to let their idol of profit get in the way of the people's access to his father. In fact, he ultimately, Jesus that is, tears down his own body, so that which is the temple, so that we have access to him, his father, through him. No more need of sacrificial doves because Jesus actually tears himself for us. Jesus is the judge that can move these things forward. Gideon was not, 
The downward spiral continues after this passage and throughout Judges. But Jesus is, the trajectory of the passage of the scriptures moves us to Jesus, Yahweh and Jesus, uh, Yahweh, Jesus' son, only begotten son, who comes to an apostate people, a people who've set up astropoles all around. Jesus who comes tearing down the tables for the poor and for the money changer so that the idol of, the, of, of their own prophet doesn't get in their way anymore. Shocked, disturbed, frustrated, of course, but he exposes their need for him by tearing down their idol and giving access to both the poor and the money changer in himself. God responds to his own rejection and his own replacement of uh, of himself with Baal or money by having mercy on his people, staying with them. He could have done away with them. He could, even should have done away with them, but he didn't because the hero of the book of Judges is Yahweh and ultimately Yahweh's son, Jesus. The tearing down, the building up, the paring down all come from our Lord Jesus whose patience and grace and mercy and long-suffering are our salvation. Remember that Christ is our aggressive and resolute God, tearing down all these things for our good, so that he would be at the control center of our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you love us, Thank you that you did not leave us um, on our own. Lord, I thank you that you're not so proud that you walked away. You would walk away from us with all our idols being uh, all our astral poles and all our uh, all our altars to Baal, all our altars to the American dream, all our altars to security and popularity and status. Lord, I thank you that you do not run away from us, but that you run to us and you care for us and that you redeem us, that you tear down even your own son, God, so that we might have access to you. Lord, help us. Help us trust you. We ask in your name. Amen.